Hi there, and welcome to Manningham Christian Centre's Sermon of the Week. I'm so glad you joined us. My name is Matt Wyatt, and I'm the lead pastor here. My prayer for you is that as you listen, you encounter God and find this message practically helpful. It would mean a lot to us if you were able to rate and subscribe. This not only lets us know how we can serve you better, but also spreads the message to those who need to hear it. Hey, thanks so much again, and I look forward to catching up with you later. Bye. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for your welcome, and, uh, and it's just been fabulous to be a part of your gathering, the National Conference uh, here, and uh, just hearing stories from Mount Barker, uh, seeing people stand up and say, I want to serve uh, Jesus in this community. I want to make a difference in this nation. It does my heart good. I hope it does your heart good. I want to start uh, this part two of the cultural challenges that we're facing in Western nations like Australia by actually jumping into, so why does it matter? Some of you are probably being gracious and thought, and, and, uh, but wondering, does it really make that much difference? Uh, I want to go to what Paul's doing in Athens. Now, this is used, probably overused, this passage. If you haven't kind of looked at it or reflected on it, it might be of some help to you. Paul is on his second missionary journey. Basically, his missionary journey was go to a town, speak to, uh, start to speak in the synagogue, then get thrown out of the synagogue, start to speak more widely, cause a riot, thrown out of town, moved to the next town. Now this, this kind of repeated itself, not a great way it would feel to do missions as it were in the world then. Paul ends up in Athens and it's really interesting that in chapter 17 of Luke's story of Acts, uh, Luke's part two of Luke writing about both Jesus in the, the, the gospel of Luke and then in Acts. And he says in chapter 17, you'll notice um, in verse 15, those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens, then left instructions with Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible, and they left. Now, there's a few ways of looking at that. One is that they had something else to do they were in mission, they left Paul in Athens and they moved on. The other way of looking at it is they were totally worn out and they took him to Athens and said, please sit there, don't cause any riots, we'll be back. It's such an interesting picture. And here is, here, here is Paul and he's walking around Athens. While Paul was waiting, remember this is supposed to be vacation. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols, overwhelmed with idols. And he wasn't interested in the sense of a kind of cultural moment. He was distressed at the idols across Athens. And he can't help himself. He starts to interact with the, 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 the people in the synagogue, the Jews and God, feeling Greeks in the marketplace all day. Now, eventually, his reputation for being incredibly smart, incredibly informed, meant that he, would, he started to get an invitation to talk more broadly. And eventually, they asked him to come to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is the kind of marketplace of ideas in Athens. In a, in a sense, it was the marketplace of ideas for the Greco-Roman world, but certainly in Athens. And in the marketplace of ideas, Paul gets to speak. 
Now, I love, I love this piece. If, you, if, you, if you've got your phone open, I'm assuming you're not on Facebook, you're on your Bible app. But if in, in chapter, verse 21 of chapter 17, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Sounds like first year arts course, doesn't it? At university. <laughs> They're sitting around having a coffee. And isn't it great when you talk to people doing an arts degree? Everybody's busy, like everybody's busy. We never talk to anybody that's not busy. And you speak to an art student, you say, how busy are you? Oh, flat out. I've got to tell you, 20 coffees with your friends does not constitute busy. <laughs> it's a bit sitting around, listening to the greatest ideas. And so Paul gets up to speak. And he stood up in the meeting in the Areopagus and he said this, people of Athens, I see that in every, in, in every way you are very... Now, we know what the answer is, what he goes on to say. But given where he started in verse 16, he could have said, you are very godless idolaters. No, he says, you are very religious as I walked around, I looked at all, carefully at the objects of worship and I even found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship and this is what I'm gonna proclaim to you. So here is Paul grasping the culture of Athens and speaking into that culture. Now, if you're thinking, well, perhaps Paul did that all the time. We won't, do this, we won't go through this now, but... If in your spare time, like you get home tonight and you can't sleep, go to chapter 13 and read from verse 13 of chapter 13 of Acts. And he's in a place called Poseidon Antioch. And in Poseidon Antioch, you'll see that he's on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue and he's then teaching and he, and he says in verse 16, fellow Israelites and Gentiles who worship God, listens to me, listen to me. And then essentially over the next number of verses, he unfolds the history of the Old Testament and then places Jesus, mentioning him specifically in the context of Old Testament prophecy and it were the span of the Bible. Now here, here is Paul with the Jews, with God-fearing Greeks who understand that history and he speaks new language, new knowledge into that history. Yet when he gets to chapter 17, in the Areopagus, in the marketplace of ideas, in a, in a city full of idols, he starts by saying, I see that you're religious in every way. You'll actually notice if you read through chapter 17 in, in this short speech, I'm sure it's a, a bit of a summary of what Paul says. He doesn't actually mention the name Jesus. Nowhere. And in fact, interestingly, even more interestingly, verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, that's not an Old Testament quote. That's a Stoic quote. And some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Essentially, Paul, informed by the culture in which he stands, speaks in a way that gains a listening ear. Now, there are people that tend to, I think, a bit dismissive about this and, and, and tend to push this a little too far as if that's all Paul said. Because I want to read the last section of what Paul said and take, take note of his words. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, their, their words, we should not think that the divine being is like silver or gold, an image made by human design or skill. In other words, 
kind of being a bit dismissive of idols. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance and now He commands all people everywhere to repent. He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed and giving proof of this to everyone by rising Him from the dead. Now, that's a pretty significant, direct gospel summary, isn't it? You are ignorant. You're gonna be judged. You need to repent. And Jesus who raised from the dead is gonna do the judging. That's not particularly softly, softly, is it? And what's intriguing is that everywhere Paul speaks, he gives the gospel. But when he does it, he does it in different modes considering the culture that he finds himself in. And what's interesting, there were, when, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Isn't that a great word, sneered? You can't say it without the lip going up. Sneer. Have you been sneered at? Because if you have, you're in great company. And sometimes when we're sneered at, we think, oh, total failure in presenting the gospel, I've been sneered at. But read on. But others said, we want to hear more about that subject. And some, are, and some became followers of Paul and believed in Jesus. I just added the Jesus bit. The, the interesting thing is Paul in this culture has a deep influence because he takes the culture seriously. And he, ta- he, he never reduces the message. He doesn't change the message. He doesn't reduce what the gospel is or stands for. But what he does is he speaks into the culture with a message that he knows will resonate with those he's speaking to. Our task is to understand our culture. And what I've done this morning with one particular area of the new religions, I wanna do tonight by talking about seven shifts that are happening, I think across Western nations like Australia that influence how we talk about Jesus and influence the culture in which we speak to. Now, this didn't come just from my own inspiration. We're about to produce a new series. We start filming it on the 4th of January and we'll actually start filming it on the 4th of January in Tanzania. It's gonna be another fabulous series. But when we were planning this series, we, Jane and my wife, who's the creative director of Olive Tree Media, the producer of everything you've watched, my wife produces it, she's brilliant. And, and we were talking about what we would do. And one of the things that we were both nervous about is that we would create a great series that answered yesterday's problems. Because series, these things take like two years to develop and, and, and finish. And having a fabulous series that answers yesterday's problems is not particularly helpful for you as church leaders. So we thought that what we would do is actually speak to as many, a number of people, and we, we're actually in, we're in the UK, we're in New York and in Chicago and in, in LA. And we actually spoke to people, we said to them, what do you think are the issues facing the church today in sharing the gospel of Jesus in modern Western cultures? Uh, and, and, and essentially they gave us a whole bunch of their ideas, a whole bunch of their thinking. They're a quite remarkable group of people, especially in the UK, we, we had the privilege of speaking to some brilliant people, absolutely brilliant people. And what we've done is come back and I've summarised that into seven points, seven different areas that the culture is shifting that influences how we talk about Jesus. And the first of those is to say, there's an evangelical, the, the, the crisis of evangelical credibility. 
the crisis of evangelical credibility. And that's, and I'm gonna actually bounce out of that tomorrow with some of the things I wanna say tomorrow about what the future of the church will look like. But right now, there's, an even, there's a crisis of evangelical credibility and it happens in two particular areas. Firstly, mostly in America, it actually comes out of Christian nationalism. The fact that very key evangelical leaders lined up behind a, a, a president whose moral choices were not ones that we would all agree with. Uh, Christian leaders who spent many years saying that character matters and character is important in leadership and then seemed to line up and be absolutely enamoured with someone whose character was not great. Put the politics aside. I know that the Supreme Court, court change was massive. The fact that Roe versus Wade was overturned was massive. But the, the credibility of the evangelical church in the midst of all of that with Christian nationalism was actually called into question. But there's actually another issue, which is I think probably more important than that, even though that's important to mention and talk about, which as an aside says something about how careful we need to be when it comes to politics and Christians and how we respond to that. Our job is not to try and run the country. Our job is to speak into the country. Our job is not to get politicians on our side. Our job is to speak into the lives and attitudes, values of the politicians in which we deal with. That doesn't mean there aren't fabulous, wonderful Christian men and women in, in the political realms of, of local, state and federal politics, but that we need to be awfully careful about how we're seen in that space. I wanna talk about that again tomorrow. That'll get you back. But also, there's a crisis of evangelical credibility around evangelical leadership failure. I don't know about whether, how much of this you watch or how much of this you read, but I've found the last 10 years depressing when watching evangelical leaders fail dismally. And if you took, went back 10 years and you said to me, Carl, in the next 10 years, you're gonna see the failure of key leaders from the Willow Creek Foundation, from RZIM, from Hillsong, I would have said, no, that's, that's not gonna happen. That, you've just been a pessimist. And yet it seems like so many significant organisations have fallen in, in, in their attitudes, behaviours and actions, which has brought enormous credibility issues for the Christian church and for the evangelical church. When they had that Royal Commission into the institutional abuse of children in Australia, in that Royal Commission, there was the Catholic Church in Australia had six times the number of cases of all other churches combined. Six times all other churches combined were within the Catholic, within the Catholic denomination. And yet in this crisis, in the crisis that, uh, that we're seeing in leadership across the world, it's actually not the, the problem of the Catholics as much as not saying, suggesting they don't have issues, they do. But this has been an evangelical failure. And it's been an evangelical failure in the area of, of sexual immorality. It's been a failure in the area of financial impropriety. And it's been a failure in the way of, of bullying and, and poor harassment and, and poor leadership attitudes. One of the things that we're dealing with as we go step into the world is you, you cannot assume that the churches we represent actually have a great reputation. In fact, part of our task is to repair the reputation of Jesus and his church in the wider community. Secondly, 
Loneliness and isolation, these, are, these jump all over the place in their style and content and, and what they're talking about. Within Western uh, democratic nations across the globe, loneliness and isolation are huge issues. People don't have real, real uh, relationships. In fact, somebody talked about the fact that we have placebo relationships. We seem to have a whole bunch of people circling around us within our worlds, but not, they're not actually close relationships. And, and the, the, the intriguing thing in the midst of all that is that we use digital communication to connect with people. And we kind of use the, the whole social media and digital communication as a way to connect. And we feel like, oh, we're connected to all these people. We have friends on Facebook. We have all these Instagram followers. We're connecting with people all the time. But is, so, is digital communication through your phone, is that actually a way to connect or a way to hide? Because in a way, digital communication is actually about self-protection, self-preservation and self-reliant. It's you, you post the things you want people to see and you don't post the things you don't want them to see. You post the great shots of the meal that you had, not the dreadful clean-up later. You post the shots of that sort of wonderful relational time you have with your family and your husband and your wife and, and, and friends. You don't post the terrible stinking argument that went for two hours beforehand. I've, I've said, saw somebody read that, you, you know, you don't have to be doing anything more important than sitting there waiting for your coffee to be made and you're looking through your phone and all it takes is one friend at the, uh, the, the Eiffel Tower to make you feel like a loser. <laughs> Digital communication has been a gift into our world, hasn't it? It's, it is a gift, but it's not necessarily a gift of friendship. And in fact, what's happening is that we're more isolated and more lonely than we've ever been. In the midst of all of that, the one of the worst parts of, of, of social media is the tribalism and isolation that causes. If you ever noticed, as you're look, looking through your phone, looking through your feed, you'll probably think, isn't this wonderful? Everybody in the world thinks just like me. <laughs> and if you've thought that, it's because you've never heard of the word algorithm. And what an algorithm does is, it, if, if you, most of you are smart enough to know this, but social media feeds and basically work out what you want to, where do you linger? What do you look at? And, and there's this algorithm working the whole time to see what you look at. And they go, okay, this is what you're interested in. We're gonna give you more of that stuff. And the more you look at it, the more of that stuff you get. And all of a sudden, he's a bit like, oh, well, the world all thinks like me. That's because you're living in a digital bubble. And that bubble is not helping your spread your friendship circle, it's actually closing you down to a small group of people. And in the middle of all of that, 44% of the, in the UK, somebody in the UK told us this, 44% in the UK services said they had no friends to ask to a Christian event. And often the way we, we gain people to consider Jesus is through our relationships and friendships. We have so few of them. And the other thing is because we have so few of them, relational equity is guarded. Think about that. You, most people, most of us have so few friends that we're very guarded about the friends that we have because that equity is really important. And we don't want to risk that equity. Sometimes we don't want to risk it on gospel communication. I want to come back to that a little, a little bit later. Um, and it's amazing how this whole isolation works. When I was in London, I was chatting to a lady who was a part of a book club. 
So clearly you know that book clubs read books. So therefore, they're kind of interested in books. And this was in February and she said to me, you cannot believe this conversation I just had last week. She said, I'm chatting to this book club. These people that read books are interested in what's been published in books, etc." And they said, what do we read next? And she said, let's read Prince Harry's book, Spare. And one of the people in the group said, has Prince Harry written a book? For those of you who are thinking, has Prince Harry written a book? Prince Harry's written a book. And it's just in England, in London, all over the press, all of the time. She'd never heard of it. It's this interesting thing that we can become awfully isolated. Third, truth, the basis of truth is now personal and how you perceive things to be true. Speaking of Prince Harry, when Prince Harry and Meghan Markle had that conversation with, with the interview with Oprah, I didn't watch the whole interview, saw some clips. But the interesting thing is all the way through the interview is your truth became the theme for the interview. Truth is now something that's what we actually said this morning and we were looking at the LGBTIQ plus issue. Truth is becoming a personal thing. What I believe is true becomes true. And, 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 in, and in certain areas, certainly around the, the transgender debate, that's become enormously important. This, I believe this is true for me, therefore it's true and you cannot challenge my truth. In fact, one of the scary things that's happening across our country and certainly some other nations as well is that you cannot challenge somebody's truth. Uh, Victoria has got the worst law, law, really, if you look at the laws around anti-conversion therapy in, in, in Victoria, all of us ought to be awfully frightened by that. Uh, those laws in Victoria mean that essentially, and I know, by the way, Dale Stevenson is the senior pastor of Crossway Baptist Church. Dale Stevenson had one of the key, I forget what he said, she was a deputy something or rather of the department that is going to institute these laws. So he got a meeting with her, with all of his staff, and he asked very direct questions about what you could and couldn't do. Keep in mind, these things have jail terms connected to them. These things have tens of thousands of dollars of fines connected to them. And basically, if somebody comes to you and says, I'm feeling like uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm gay, I'm same-sex attracted, I don't really want it, but I'm feeling like it, you need to be very careful about what you say. Because if you say, Jesus doesn't want that in you, here's, here's Leviticus, here's, here's Romans chapter one, here's, here, look, look, at, look at what this says, you can't, you can't hold that. I'm gonna pray this out of you. And the best sense, in a pastoral sense, that's what you're saying, because that's what the God's Word is saying. And you're trying to disciple them into, they're saying, I wanna follow Jesus. If they say, wow, I'm, 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 I really feel oppressed and abused by what you've said. If they were to push that through courts, that's a problem. Now, when it comes to and the whole anti-conversion laws are supposedly standing against things that nobody does anymore, actually. But one of the places that's really dangerous is if a 13 or 14 year old says, I'm a girl and I, wish, I think I'm a boy. What you say in that space becomes really dangerous. We need to, now, in all of those situations, we need to be exceptionally thoughtful and careful as a pastoral response. That's our God-given pastoral response to these people. But the sense that, that we can now be in a space where the government is saying to you, 
You can't say that. In fact, uh, Dale actually made the point that um, they were saying if somebody you're preaching and you're preaching about these issues and somebody says, I felt, I'm feeling targeted by what you said, the person from the department said that would be a red flag. Now here, here's this space where not only is personal truth become an issue for us to deal with kind of philosophically, it's become an issue for us to deal with legally. And, and uh, Justin Briley, who's a guy I've mentioned a few times in his book, a surprising rebirth of, of faith says this, slogans like my body, my choice in the abortion debate, my body, my choice in the abortion debate, love is love in the same sex marriage debate and trans women are women in the transgender debate reveal that personal experience is now key. So that's what we're speaking into, what people feel is true. Fourthly, Jumping subjects, but it's related to one earlier, fear and anxiety. We live in, in Western nations with people who are overcome with fear and anxiety. Uh, and I think that's clearly the pandemic and there's still a hangover of the pandemic and, and all that went on through the pandemic. The Ukraine war is creating fear and anxiety and the, the climate emergency, when people are talking about extinction rebellion, that we've got five years to go, that the, 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 the caps are going to be gone in no time. We have no future unless we change absolutely everything. Fear is a part of all of that. And the incredible thing about fear and anxiety is the mental health crisis among young women. Now, I don't know that you, whether you've seen this, but all the studies seem to suggest that the mental health of young women over kind of 12 through to their 20s, the mental health of young women from 2010 has, has decreased exponentially. And, and they're struggling enormously. And one of the things that, so what happened in 2010? Well, there's one of two things. It's either A, the smartphone, or B, the like button on Instagram. And it's that whole space is having a deep influence in the young women within our community. And there's this sense of anxiety, there's a sense of fear, and there's a sense of fear for the future. Fifth, there's a shift in attitude towards religion in the West. And I've kind of hinted at this over the times I've, speak, I've been speaking to you. When we talked about Australia and, uh, last night, was that just last night? Gosh, feels like a long time ago. When we were talking about Australia last night, we talked about Australia in the 1950s. And if you go to most Western nations with a Christian kind of ethos in its background, in the 1950s, wasn't that everybody was Christian and it wasn't that it was sort of Nirvana, the, the time when the, the church was doing incredibly well. But at that point, the church was very central within the community. Uh, the, there was no kind of questioning of the place of the Christian church. There was no questioning of Christian leaders and what their role should be. There was this sort of central, centralised place for the church. And then we hit the 60s and 70s, the sexual revolution, uh, the moral revolution, and all went on through the 60s and 70s. And coming into the 70s, there was a sort of a shift in how people viewed the church. And the shift went from the church being a central to the church being nice but irrelevant. This notion that, well, if you believe that, that's good for you, knock yourself out. But that's kind of yesterday's story. We've moved past this. We're into the, the new age. Everything's going to be fabulous now. And if you want to have a personal faith, that's great. But it's, a bit, it's just basically irrelevant. It was sort of seen as this irrelevant thing, but neutral from its uh, impact on society. 
Then we gone on to probably the year, into the year 2000, the so late 90s and into the 2000s, and there was a shift again. Part of that came through the new atheists, part of it came through the, the new religious frameworks that I talked about this morning. And it went from irrelevant to dangerous. This is a dangerous idea. The idea that, you're, that we, would, we would preach what the Bible says about sexual ethics is a dangerous idea. The fact that we would preach what the Bible says about who is a man and who is a woman, dangerous idea. The, th- the fact that we would talk about the sanctity of life within the womb, a dangerous idea. Now, what do you do with dangerous ideas in any community? You pull it out of the public square. And the pressure in nations like Australia to take Christianity out of the school, out of politics, out of the media, out of anything in the sense that is the public square. And it's almost like at one stage we were treated as central. Then we were treated as, well, a bit harmless, but irrelevant. Now there's this sense that you have no place there. You need to be pulled out of that. You're a dangerous idea that we need to be, be careful of and respond to. Now, interestingly, I'll come back to this in a minute, but let me just use, make this one point now. That, that, interestingly, that, that is being challenged right now. Right now across the globe, it's been, that idea of Christianity being a terrible, dangerous idea is being challenged. I was speaking about a couple of, the, a couple of these things about two weeks ago in Sydney and I did, was doing it at dinner and a guy came up to me at the end of it and he said, Carlos, I want you to know I was listening. Now, I didn't get the, unfortunately, I didn't get the names. I didn't write it down. So just, this is a bit of a vague example. And he came to me at the end and he said, you know, so interesting. I listened to a podcast of a guy who's an atheist scientist and he's a youngish guy and he interviews all these different atheist scientists from around the world and philosophers and, and, and they have these quite erudite discussions. He said, you know what's been interesting? In the last three I've listened to, the atheist young kind of uh, atheist evangelist, if I can use that term, uh, is, is speaking to the scientists and at the, toward the end, each time he's kind of said, dismissed Christianity. And, and kind of brought this up as if to say, well, you're, I'm, not a, I'm an atheist and you're an atheist and clearly those Christians are a, you know, a group of people that we should push aside. And three times, he said, different people have said, yeah, but we've got to remember the deep positive influence that Christians have had within Western nations. So maybe there's a swing back from the dangerous and I'm going to come to that in a moment. But what it says is don't assume that you have a place where you'll get a positive listening ear in any public square. Fifthly, there's, there's, sixthly, there's no, there's no homogeneous Western nation anymore. This, now, I don't know that there ever was, but that is, that, is, that is changing radically all of the time. It's changing from immigration. It's changing from the way people function and move. It's changing from the new religious ideologies I talked about this morning, where people are gathering in groups around those ideologies. It's changing in the way we think and act. It's changing through education. And I, it was brought home to me when I was chatting to a guy, he happened to be an American, and I said, and Jane and I opened, each time we chatted to people and we said, so what do you reckon are the biggest challenges facing uh, you know, Christianity in the West today? And his answer was, which bit of the West are you talking about? I said, well, you know, in America, which bit of America are you talking about? 
You're talking about an African-American who lives in downtown New York. You're talking to a country guy that lives in Ohio somewhere. You're talking to somebody who's on the streets in LA. And it's one of those moments where you go, there really isn't a homogeneous group, is there? We're not dealing with one little group. You can't, you can't take what I'm saying tonight and go, okay, great, I've got these seven points. I know where Australians are at. We're gonna get, get out there and get into our community. What you need to do is exactly what Paul did. What all of us need to do is what Paul did. Because keep in mind, when Paul spoke in Poseidon, Antioch, and then he spoke in Athens, they were only kilometres apart. I don't mean three or four, I'm more than that, but they were in the same region. What was true for Paul then is true for us today. And what we need to understand is why we need to grasp some of the big meta-narratives that are going on with our community. Know your place. Know Mount Barker. Know Narromine. Know Adelaide. Know wherever it is you are. Know your community. Talk to people. Ask them about the history. Understand who they are, where they're from and what's going on in their lives, their hearts, their communities. There's no such thing, while it's good to get the big shifts and changes and the, and the challenges, the cultural challenges we face, there is no such thing as a homogeneous Western thought. Lastly, of these seven, there's a shift in attitude and focus of academics, authors and key thinkers. And this is very new. If you go back to, I said this morning, the new atheists, the new atheists seem to be, that's the way the thinkers are acting. This is the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is, this is the kind of university set. This is, this is where everybody's at in our new world. We interviewed a guy called uh, Robert Woodbury. Uh, he's absolutely brilliant. Uh, look up a, a paper you can get on, on Google it. It's called The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracies. A, a seminal paper. He's now at Baylor University in, in Waco, Texas, the same place that Rodney Stark was. Rodney Stark died last year. And, and we, when we were talking in, in, um, in Jesus the Game Changer 2, we were chatting to, to each of the guests and one of the guests that we said, Jesus the Game Changer 2 is about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Well, that now that the gospel is at the ends of the earth geographically and ethically, it's a, ethnically, it's in every nation, it's right across the globe, so where's the ends of the earth? And we asked everybody that. And people said, across the table, across the street. The ends of the earth is where the gospel isn't. The ends of the earth is going to where the gospel used to be and isn't anymore. Rod, uh, uh, Robert Woodbury said, I think the most unreached people group in the world are the academic staff in sociology, sociology departments in Western universities. There is the end of the earth. And that's the kind of space that we've been functioning in, that the academics, the writers, the, the leaders of thought within our community have sort of pushed the gospel aside, pushed Jesus aside, pushed the church out, no time for the church. Except that is changing. And one of the, the com several conversations that we had overseas was what you have around the world at the moment is a whole bunch of people, which is what I was alluding to this morning, who are pushing back against woke culture because they're saying woke culture, this notion of, of, of a woke ideology, that's actually more dangerous than what we thought about Christianity. 
Now this actually came about through Justin Briley. I've quoted him several times. And Justin Briley, uh, he said, oh, let me give you an example, Carl. I, I, there's a guy called uh, Peter Bukhashen. And Peter Bukhashen had written a book in the, the 2010s, which was called A Manual for Creating Atheists. So you can imagine where Peter Bukhashen's kind of thought process was. Here's a book that said, you wanna create an atheist? I'll give you a book and here's an instant way of creating an atheist. And Justin Briley, who runs, had, had, doesn't anymore, but had run a show on Premier Radio in London and the show was called Unbelievable. And in the show Unbelievable, he would often get, mostly get somebody from one side, an atheist side and a Christian side on a particular topic and they would have a civil conversation. And Unbelievable is incredibly popular. It's a podcast, it's listened to across the globe. And, and Peter McCashin had been on his, excuse me, had been on his show. Justin was doing a new show just a couple of years ago. It might have even just been last year or the year before. And he said, he ran, he rang Bukhashen and said, listen, I'm doing this show. Um, I'm, I'm interested, would you come on the show? Be one of the guests. And he's like, hmm, I've moved. And if you look up Peter Bukhashen on social media, where he's moved is, he doesn't see Christian faith as the big danger. In fact, he sees woke ideology as the big danger. He sees the three religious frameworks we talked about today, this morning as the big danger. He's basically saying there is the danger. And in fact, there's another guy called Peter Greggs who's written in a, a thing called, it's just a newspaper magazine uh, called, the, I've forgotten what it's called. It doesn't really matter and you won't really know it anyway. I'd never heard of it until I'd seen this article. But he was basically saying, if you wanna stand against woke ideology, even if you're not a Christian, you need to back Christians because it's the only way we'll stand against it. Because what he's saying is, if you don't have a solid kind of place ideology belief, you have no defence against what's coming. Now, interestingly, that's being repeated time and time again. Listen to some of these names. Tom Holland, who's written a book called Dominion. I'm gonna, I'll come back to Tom Holland in a minute. One of my favourites, my wife actually says I have a man crush on him. That may or may not be true. For those of you who are thinking, gee, I can't believe that the actor in Spider-Man was such an intellectual giant. It's a different Tom Holland. And I'll come back to Tom Holland in a minute. I've mentioned a guy called Douglas Murray. And Douglas Murray has written a book called The War on the West. He's also written a book called The Madness of Crowds. Both of those books are brilliant books who are standing against these ideologies. And the interesting thing is that Douglas Murray is a gay man. He's not a Christian at all. And none of the people I'm about to tell you about are Christians. But what they're saying is that this is a dangerous space. Sam Harris, who was one of the four uh, horsemen of the apocalypse in the new, new atheist movement, is now kind of on the dark web and on, on the web talking about how we stand against these new ideologies. There's a guy called Jonathan Haidt, which is H, not hate, but hate, which is H-A-I-D-T. He's written a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And Jonathan Haidt wrote this book after being on staff in a university. Uh, he's moved different, different universities now. At the time, uh, Donald Trump came to the university. He, he, was, he was one of the people protesting against Donald Trump. He's not on Donald Trump's side, but he's, he's protesting against him. Donald Trump turns up and he looks around and sees what's happening. And there's all these students in, in small rooms with, 
with comfort dogs and colouring in pencils. And, and he's like, what, what is this? And there's this notion of the coddling of the American mind, which cannot take ideas they disagree with. And where do we end up if that's where our academia ends up is what he's trying to write. That's a very short summary. Uh, that great uh, the Jordan Peterson, who we've already talked about, thousands of men, young men turning up to listen to him speak. He does a whole bunch of stuff on the Bible. It's not very good. I mean, it's great to listen to, but it's not very good on the Bible. But, it, but here's this notion of struggling with, with faith and belief. Uh, Dave Rubin, another guy who's a, a, a gay man. Bill Maher is a, a nighttime host. If you listen to Bill Maher, I saw clips of Bill Maher on, um, I don't know what his show, but I've seen clips of Bill Maher on social media. And if you went back five to 10 years, every clip I saw was him trashing Christians, trashing religious people, trashing people of faith, putting them down as a stupid group of people. Guess who is now challenging? He's now challenged woke ideology. And in fact, that's what all the clips are about. And in fact, interestingly as well, you now have people like Ricky Gervais actually making jokes about it. Now, probably, maybe you're thinking, well, what does it matter what Ricky Gervais thinks? When the comedians start, you know that there's a shift in the culture. And until the, and until the comedians start. Now, we're used to comedians making fun of Christians. That's happened for years. That's just kind of the air that we breathe. Now there's a shift. One of Justin Briley's concepts, he quotes a, a poem written in 1870s and the poem's about, I should have brought the book, I forgot to bring the book. The poem's about the receding tide of faith and how quietly but slowly the tide of faith has gone out. And that's been true of Western nations, slowly disappearing as we see the census numbers and church attendance and the place we hold in modern Western democratic nations. Here's the question. What will it look like for the tide to come back in? And will it start with a mass movement? Or maybe it will start with the thinkers, the academics, and the people who challenge an ideology that stands against us. And what we, what, here's a piece of hope that, that, that the new atheists have gone. Woke ideology stands front and centre and seems to dominate the public square. But there's a lot of people challenging that. And there are people who are standing, as it were, on our team to challenge that. What we need to do in response to all these seven ideas, and to, it, it, clearly to understand your own culture, uh, is, is we, what we need to do is, is to, to develop a thing that, that there's a guy, there's a couple of books out, um, there's a guy called Gould who's written a book on cultural apologetics. In other words, not arguing the kind of old intellectual apologetics, even though they have a place, and I'm going to mention that in a moment. Intellectual apologetics have ne will never disappear, they'll always have a place. But cultural apologetics is basically helping people understand the truth, beauty and goodness of the message of Jesus. Our job, each of our jobs, is to bring to our community, the Australian community, the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus. The truth, beauty, of goodness of the Christian church. The truth, beauty, and goodness of an eternal relationship with Jesus. The truth, beauty, and goodness of the work of the Holy Spirit. The truth, beauty, and goodness of you as individuals and the difference that you're making. Now, interesting, it sounds like I'm kind of contradicting myself because I've got, already said that truth is personal. 
There's still a question about what's true and that's always going to happen and it's always going to be there. The NCLS did a survey last year and and actually 49%, I still can't believe this, 49% of Australians from NCLS last year said they believe Jesus was a mythical figure. That's bizarre. I mean, I'm with John Dixon. You know who John Dixon is, the apologist, uh, writer, writer. He's now in Wheaton in in the US. John Dixon said, find me a serious historian, ancient historian, who does not believe that Jesus was a real person and I will eat a page of my Bible. And he hasn't had to nibble a testament just yet. Because that's not what people believe. Whatever you believe about Jesus, they believe. The knowledge that he was a real person is true. And we need to start coming back to that as well and helping people understand the truth of that. We also need to understand, help people see the beauty of the person of Jesus, the beauty of what we believe in. Everything that we do ought to be, ought to be beautiful in what we do. I don't think we should be kind of over enamoured with excellence. And, and I'm not saying we do a rubbish job, but, but sometimes excellence can be... a a stick we beat ourselves with. Do things as well as you can. See beauty in all that, we, that you do. Find the creatives in your church and let them loose. Don't let them organise anything, but let them loose. <laughs> the intellectuals among us, the intellectuals among us want the kind of, you know, three points, best starting with the same word. That's what we want. The people with beauty are gonna change your community. And we need to help people see the goodness in Jesus. And I wanna finish with what's really important about this guy, Tom Holland. So for those of you who don't know Tom Holland, he's written a book called Dominion. It's 600 pages. And Dominion is looking over history and the influence of Jesus through history. But there's also an online article, which is three pages long. Summarises it all, get that. So so what is it about Tom Holland? So Tom Holland is a Greco-Roman specialist, loves the Greco-Roman world, loves everything about the Greco-Roman world. He he says, when I interviewed him, it was like he was was enamoured with dinosaurs as a kid. And his love for dinosaurs just morphed into his love for the Greco-Roman world because they were big, they were dangerous, and they were extinct. And the two things matched. So over the time, he, read, he wrote books about the Greco-Roman world. He wrote novels about them. You know, this, this, this historian in love with the Greco-Roman world. And then he had this moment of cognitive dissonance because he's looking at the Greco-Roman world and he's going, their morals and values are awful. They are morally abhorrent compared to today. They, they accepted and lived with things that we just would not abide. They killed disabled children without a qualm. He said they, they went and, and took over the Gauls, which is now what we call France, killed a million of them and enslaved a million more. Think about this, the whole gladiatorial thing. You know, remember when Russell Crowe was cut in Gladiator? I love Gladiator, fabulous movie. But think about this. Here is a group of people, a couple of thousand, whose sole job it was to walk out into an arena and kill each other for the amusement of a crowd. Keep in mind, this wasn't tomato sauce and and acting. 
This was actually kill people in front of a crowd and nobody went, is that a good idea? It was just accepted. All these things were just an accepted part of the Greco-Roman world. And now we would never put up with any of that. Even the most godless within our community wouldn't put up with any of that. What happened? Here's, here's Tom Holland's answer. What happened was Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus changed the world. Jesus changed our society. Jesus changed our values. And Tom Holland finishes the three-page article, which you'll all go and look up, while I was wrong about Christianity. And he said, while the pews in the West continue to, to de decrease in size, what I've come to realise, that in my morals and in my values, I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. Now, Holland, so you'll all be fan boys as well and girls. Holland is not, and this is what's really important. Holland is not saying, and he's very close to the Kingdom of God. Justin Briley's interviewed him a few times. Holland's not saying, I'm a Christian who believes that Jesus died and rose again. He's saying that whatever went on back then changed the world. And the people who followed Jesus changed the world. And the, St Paul and his writing in the New Testament is, is seminal and pivotal to the world in which we now live in. And that we live in a world as, uh, uh, that breathes Christian air. We swim in waters that are Christian waters. This community is surrounded by people who have never darkened the door of this church, but are already influenced by the person of Jesus. And what do we need to tell them? Jesus is good. Jesus is true, beautiful and good. And the influence, the footprint of influence of Jesus on this Western culture is remarkably good. And we live in great countries, partly because of the person of Jesus. Truth, beauty and goodness will change the world. Amen. Bless you guys, thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Anna. I trust that during the service, God was moving in your heart and His presence was where you are. Just before we say goodbye today, I'd love to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. If today's message spoke to you, or you've been considering believing in Jesus as your Saviour, then I would love to invite you to do that now. Would you repeat this short prayer after me? Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose again to give me life. I ask you to forgive my sins and be my Lord and my Saviour. I open my heart to you today. Amen. If you said yes to Jesus today, we would love to hear from you. We would love to celebrate with you, pray with you, and help you start your Jesus journey. Visit our website, manninghamcc.org, and go to the I Said Yes page. Fill out your details, and one of our leaders will get in touch with you. We would love to hear your story. Hey, thanks for joining in today and being part of our service. If you enjoyed today's service, would you click the share button and subscribe to MCC so you can stay connected. We all need some good news. 
and we would love to hear how God has spoken to you today. Visit manninghamcc.org and fill out a good news story form today. If you would love to know more how to grow in your relationship with God, then Next Steps provides the path for you. Visit manninghamcc.org to find out more. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.